Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Dalip George. Dalip is co-founder and CTO of Vicarious. Dalip, welcome to the Twimble AI Podcast. Hi, Sam. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Rumor has it we may talk about AGI. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but we'll see. Before we do, though, let's start by having you share a little bit about your background with our audience and tell us about how you got started in AI. What was the spark that set you off on this path? Sure. So I'm an electrical engineer by training. So all my bachelor's, master's, PhD, all are in electrical engineering. It was during my time at Stanford, during my master's time, I got interested in the brains. You know, if you if you understand how the brains work and if you can build machines that work like the brain, that would be amazing. That is the goal of AI. And I got interested in that problem during my master's time. And then I converted all my projects in Dublin at, at Stanford related to something understanding the brain, whether it is machine learning uh, that is motivated by the brain or understanding the circuits of the brain. So all my projects, uh, course projects, everything got converted to something related to the brain. And then I continued on that to do a PhD um, and uh, met up with Jeff Hawkins, who was at the same time pursuing similar goals. And he had started a neuroscience institute right outside Stanford. So I, I did a PhD, which is an amalgamation of machine learning and neuroscience, and also ended up starting a company with him during my PhD time that's called Numenta. And in 2010, we started Vicarious, um, Scott Phoenix and I started Vicarious to pursue that goal long-term to build uh, artificial general intelligence modeled after the human brain. And so that was the goal or is the goal at Numenta. Why did you feel like you needed to start a separate company in order to continue to pursue that goal? Is there a ideological difference in terms of the, the technical approach or um, you know, maybe this will help us understand Numenta a bit in your direction? Yeah, so there are several ways to take inspiration from the brain and uh, several ways to implement that inspiration. You know, how, how do you take insights from the brain? What is the methodology you follow to take insights from the brain? How do you encode them? How do you build systems based on that? Even when you agree on the high-level ideas that you need to take inspiration from the brain or insights from the brain, there are so many different paths you can follow in making that into practice. And on that one, I have ideological differences with uh, Jeff, who I learned a lot from, of course, and I consider him as a pioneer in this realm. But there are differences in how we think about the problem and how we want to bring it into practice. And one core difference is that I want to lean a lot on insights from machine learning and probabilistic graphical models and all those things. So I want want to take insights from the brain. And uh, even when I look at the brain for insights, I am looking at it from an algorithmic framework. And I, I have a paper explaining this idea. We use this idea called you know, a triangulation framework. You want to look at the brain, the world, and algorithm, al- algorithmic understanding at the same time. So when you look at the brain, you have lots of details. And a lot of those details are not 
relevant for machine learning. Uh, some of them are just for metabolism or some of them are just for communication. Um, so you want to look at the brain and find principles that are related to information processing. How do you find that? To find that, you need to look at it from algorithmic angle and also related to you know, what's the organization of the world. The brain exists in a particular way because the world exists in a particular way. So you want to be able to find that correspondence between the organizational features of the brain and the organizational features of the world and be able to un- explain it from an algorithmic standpoint. And that's when you, ca- you have found something insightful and useful. So being able to triangulate that and then putting that in a proper algorithmic foundation or, or computational foundation, that's something we at Vicarious take seriously. And that's where some of the differences are. Mm, interesting. So it, you started that off by saying, if we take for granted that we should be drawing inspiration from the brain and how we think about machine learning and, and AGI and, and artificial intelligence, I guess, in, in general, I think even that is a controversial statement. I think I saw a tweet recently. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was maybe Zach Lipton. It might have been someone else. Uh, sorry, Zach, if it wasn't you. But I was kind of like, you know, is the progress we've made in deep learning a result of the inspiration we've drawn from the brain, or is that the thing that's been holding us back? Uh, <laughs> in other words, we, you know, trying to pull too much out of this association between the neurons and the neural network. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Any take on that? Yeah. I mean, so the neurons to artificial neural network inspiration is kind of oversold, right? That's uh, so biological inspiration is so fashionable. I didn't expect it to be this fashionable, uh, uh, so, but, uh, but it is fashionable, and you can you you can kind of sprinkle biological inspiration on any, anything that you do, and uh, and raise uh, a lot of money. Like, is it marketing sprinkle or is sure. it sprinkle? It, um, it's something at, that attracts people because you know brain is this mysterious machine, and if you say that hey your your system works like the brain, there is some attraction to that, right? And uh, I don't want to say that it is all misconstrued or people are trying to deceive. It's more, there is a natural attraction to the fact that, oh, could we be building machines that are actually working like the brain? You know, that is fascinating in itself. People are fascinated by that idea. But about artificial neural networks, I would say the, the correspondence between artificial neurons and biological neurons and, oh, because of that, it works like the brain. That That is just a very loose analogy. That's not what we are after. So I can I can make a few arguments on why looking at the brain is important. Um, okay. So the first one is that if you're looking at general intelligence, artificial general intelligence, there is only one proof of concept we have. You know, what is the definition of artificial general intelligence? The only proof point that we have and a reference design that we have is human intelligence, right? We know that you cannot build some arbitrarily powerful super intelligence, that kind of thing. That, you know, we know that that is not possible. That doesn't exist and you cannot build that. But we also know that existing algorithms are not anywhere as general as human performance. So there is a gap to be filled in. And whenever we talk about filling in that gap, how do we know that, you know, we haven't reached the maximum of what we can do with artificial intelligence? We are always referring to how robust are humans, how robust are humans at understanding language, understanding our physical world, understanding images being able to manipulate things in the world, we are always referring to human intelligence. Oh, wow, look at how robust humans are. So so, so first is being the reference point. This is what general intelligence is. 
And the second is also related to you know, machine learning itself. We know that to build systems that are fast at learning things, which are efficient at picking up new things, we need to make assumptions. There is no assumption-free learning system. But humans seem to be in this magic realm where we are very good at a wide variety of things, but we are also pretty fast at picking up those things you know, compared to traditional like, you know, standard machine learning systems or current deep learning systems. And so, so what explains this, this magic? Why are we quite wide and at the same time quite efficient as well? And our thinking is that it's because we are making this Goldilocks set of assumptions. We are, we are making a set of assumptions which are so tuned to the world that we live in that it appears that we are very broad. But it is broad in this world. You know, it's broad under a set of assumptions about the statistics of the world, about the physics of the world. And so then it is about how do you, you know, what are those assumptions which are very good for modeling our world? And how do you encode those assumptions in a learning framework? And for all of them, we can look to the brain to find out what is brain doing? How is brain encoding those assumptions? And, uh, you know, how is it using that to speed up learning and inference? And this is something evolution took a long time to figure out because it was not always like this. All the animals that evolution produced before mammals were not generally intelligent. They, they had behaviors which were tuned for particular niches. But then evolution came up with this architecture, which is the neocortex, which was much more broader in its capabilities. So if we can look to the brain to understand what might be the assumptions encoded in them and what might be the principles that power neocortex, that would be beneficial. So that's the way we look at the uh, neocortex. I, I hope that those two arguments click. Sure. Is the the implication then that if you can accurately capture, you know, uh, t- set aside whether accuracy is the right word here, but if you could somehow capture and encode the assumptions that, you know, that's the major challenge with intelligence as opposed to the machinery, which will then operate on those assumptions? Yeah, it's about what are the assumptions, you know, what are the basic set of assumptions? How do you encode them in your, what, what's the representational scaffolding that you use to put that into your models? And what's the overall ar- uh, cognitive architecture that brings all of these things together? Perception, action, building cognitive maps, language, all of those things together to click and you know, work like the human brain so that we can, we can not only have a causal understanding of the world, we can also plan forward things, we can do counterfactual reasoning, we can pull in knowledge about the world at the right moment, uh, in the right context. So how does all these things fit together? And looking into the brain, which I include cognitive science and neuroscience in that bucket, will guide us to how do you put all of these things together? Mm -hmm. And so how do you start to capture all of these assumptions? Yeah, so I can start from uh, language understanding and work way back, right? So that could be one way to... And this is an example I use quite often to show that language understanding is not just language. So if you have heard this example before, you know, pardon me because I've, I've used it many times. So if I give you two sentences and if I ask you a question, so that's the exercise I follow. So if I give you a sentence, John pounded a nail on the wall. And then if I ask you a follow-up question, was the nail horizontal or vertical? Mm-hmm. Then you can imagine in your head, how do you answer that question, right? So humans answer that question by imagining that scene. When I told you John pounded a nail on the wall, in your head, you are actually imagining a John, uh, you know, a, a wall, a hammer, all those things. And uh, and then 
you are reading the answer from that simulation. Mm -hmm. um, so think of how, the, is that how GPT-3 works? No, GPT-3 has just a symbol-to-symbol <laughs> -symbol association between characters and uh, it's, it's based on the statistics of what it reads on the internet, it, it will pull out some answer. But that's not how humans operate. When we hear the language, we are using that language to run a simulation in our head. And where is that knowledge for simulation stored? It is stored in our perceptual and motor systems and using all the experience that we have accumulated over our lifetime, right? And now if I can ask you a different question, I can change the situation. What, what if the wall was uh, made of styrofoam? Or what if the hammer uh, did not have a handle? I can cook up all the situations and I can produce, you know, I can make you think about answers for those situations in your head. So being able to internalize our external world and run simulations vicariously, that is an important part of understanding language. So to be able to build systems that have common sense, you know, this is this is an example of having common sense. If I ask you was the nail vertical or horizontal, that's an example of common sense. To be able to get to the common sense, you need to understand systems that are all the way from language to perception and being able to connect all the way. And so the, the idea that you have to understand language imposes a set of constraints on how you can build the perception system. So it cannot be just a discriminative uh, pattern classifier system like that we are building using deep CNNs now. It tells that your perception system needs to be generative and generative in a way that is controllable by top-down you know, language-based queries. So that tells us you have to build generative systems for perception. And then you also have to build generative systems for understanding concepts because language anchors on having concepts. When I speak a word uh, or, or a sentence, glass is half full. You know, what does it mean? What does full mean? Or, you know, what does emptying a glass mean? All those things, even without language, you have those concepts in your brain. And so how do you represent those concepts? How do you acquire those concepts? And how do you connect that to language? All these threads need to be connected together. So that's, um, I've now lost track of what the question was. <laughs> I think the I think the question that I asked had something to do with like how do you start to capture you know these assumptions and you said a bunch of really interesting and thought provoking things this idea of us answering conceptual questions via running simulations that's interesting yeah uh, and then thinking about that as a generative process that's interesting got it um, uh, yeah and now so so. <laughs> step in that one, if you, if you take a step back and see what I said, the first step was basically, you have to think of all these problems, perception, language, concept understanding, sensory motor interactions, all of them as connected problems. Currently, we think of all of them as individual problems with individual benchmarks, but that can drive us in the wrong direction. You have to, you have to see how language influences perception in its design. So then when you look at each piece, so let's, for example, look at perception. As, as I mentioned, you have to think of perception as a generative process. It's not a classifying process. It's not It's not regression with lots of data to say, oh, here is the image, what is the label? That's not, in, it's, it's a generative process. And it has to be generative in a componential way, in a compositional way that you want to be able to think about concepts. For example, if I ask you to think about a chair made of ice, you can think about a chair made of ice, even though you might not have seen it before. 
So you can think of concepts and think of how it affects perception in a in a compositional way. And what pieces are compositional there? For example, the idea that uh, you can compose the shapes of the objects with different appearances of the object, or you can think of backgrounds and foregrounds separately. So these ideas on how do you structure a perception system, what are the core assumptions that need to go into a perception system, you can get insights on that by looking at neuroscience. And is the implication there that you can taxonomize our human ability to compose concepts? Are there only some limited number of things that we're able to compose in our imaginations or do well, like chair made of ice or red chair or, you know, these basic things? Well, yeah. So you can say that there are limits on what are the kind of things we can compose. So they're trying to kind of thinking it. I heard something in your explanation around kind of constraining the the composition and I'm trying to understand is because that's what you think is happening biologically and we're trying to model that or are we constraining the composition just to make it practical from a computational perspective? Both, both. Biology is doing it because it produces some advantages, right? So, So if you look at what our visual system is doing, our visual system is making some assumptions about how the world is organized, how the natural signals in the world are organized. And natural signals in our world has certain properties because of the physics of the world. It is not some random things happening. The physics has its own friction and momentum, all those things associated with it, right? And uh, so because of that, natural signals have certain properties. And the brain, your visual system is making assumptions which are tuned to those properties, which makes it work very well on those kinds of signals. So if you, if you, if I show you pictures of objects and I change the appearance, your visual system will not get confused. But if I show you QR codes and ask you to classify QR codes, <laughs> your visual system will not do well at all. <laughs> if you take a deep neural network currently and try to trying to train it on classifying noise or memorizing noise, it will actually do very well. So that is showing us, uh, that is emphasizing the point that I made earlier, that those systems are not making enough assumptions about the world. And if you make enough assumptions about the world, it also comes with side effects that, yeah, now your system won't do very well at QR code classification. You know, you'll have to train a different neural network to do that. You won't use a human vision system to classify QR codes. So that's the trade-off that is involved when you are trying to build you know, what you call general intelligence, that generality has its own limitations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about trying to tackle these problems at Vicarious and in your research, are you using neural networks as we know them, deep neural nets as kind of the building block? Or do you, you know, like Numenta, have another building block of choice that, you know, has more degrees of freedom in a particular direction or more constraints in a particular direction? So we mostly use probabilistic graphical models as our building framework. But graphical models itself has its own you know, limitations. So you have to kind of extend the language to include programs. So you can think of uh, probabilistic graphical models extended with programs as the language. Some people call it probabilistic programs as the more generic uh, language. But it, that doesn't mean we don't use deep neural networks. So we use uh, graphical models as a way to think about the problem. And when you, when you try to bring it into practice, you can so you can you can think of probabilistic models as building models about the world, right? So that is that is where all your knowledge gets stored, and how do you structure it such that your knowledge is stored in in the right fashion so that you can query it, etc. Now 
when you want to do inference on this model, and also when you want to do learning on this model, you can use insights from deep learning and neural networks to train this model and to do inference on this model. And even in deep neural networks, these ideas are imported, right? When you think about variational autoencoder, you start with a graphical model associated with the problem, and then you say you want to amortize the inference. So we, we can use many of those techniques even in our work. And when it comes to causal understanding of the world, when, you, when it comes to causality, you kind of have to think of it in terms of graphical models. There is no way around it. Then for accelerating learning or inference, you can use uh, neural network techniques. Okay. And you use all of those. And, and so how do you, you know, where you may be trying to solve this general intelligence problem and think that the approaches that you're pursuing are ultimately going to get you there, how do you sculpt that down to something that is tractable, commercially viable, you know, whatever kind of your real world constraint is of choice? Yeah. Uh, what's kind of the path that you take to, to try to get there? Yeah. So you have to be really, really careful on. So, so one is, you know, we are taking a very systematic path to our, our vision for general intelligence. If you look at the kind of papers that we published, you know, so we first published recursive cortical networks, which is a generative model for vision. And then we published schema networks, which is a generative model for dynamics. How, how do objects collide with each other, combine with each other, et cetera. And, and these two are compatible with each other. The RCN model that we published and schema networks are compatible with each other. Then we published a paper on how do you use a computer system which has both this generative model for vision and generative model for dynamics in it to learn concepts as programs. So that was the science robotics paper that we published. And then the motivation for that paper was how do you teach concepts to robots? So if you want to achieve a task through robots, you have to tell it somehow what, you know, how do you tell it you want to pick up the red objects and put it in the blue box? And to convey that idea, robots need to have concepts. And it is also related to the idea of how do you build AGI? So you, you can see that the papers that we are publishing are on a systematic track to you know, building towards language. And the next paper will be about you know, how do you use this concept for grounded language. Now, we have to be really, really conscious and we have to be completely open about which of these ideas can be applied in robotics and when. Uh, <laughs> because when you build practical systems, there are many other constraints that come from the real world, right? One is, one is speed. If you want to apply robotics in the real world, Speed is a big constraint. You cannot be slower than humans uh, by two or three times because then it's not economical to deploy at all. So although, although we develop these techniques generally, we are careful in picking the pieces which we apply in the real world. For example, RCN is applied in the real world. We are using it in real world uh, settings and it is giving us a benefit because it can be trained very, very fast. Uh, but the schema network stuff that we have done, we haven't applied in the real world yet. And um, similarly, the, the concept learning stuff. So I, I don't have a formula for it other than basically saying you decide on a case-by-case -case basis. So the, the product deployment, product development, everything is driven by the customer requirements. And then you look at it and say, which pieces that we have developed on the research team can be ported for that application? And the research part continues on its own path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the in terms of the productization, is the, the primary 
focus on robotic systems or industrial systems, or are, are there other elements that you're working on? Yeah, it's the primary deployments are all uh, robotics in warehouses, assembly lines, manufacturing, uh, etc. So I, I can tell you what the problem is. If you look at how products are made and packaged, most of them are still uh, done by humans because these environments change over quite frequently. The, the products change over quite frequently, and it is not structured like in car manufacturing. So if you think of car manufacturing, a car is designed, you know, you take two years to design a car right. and then you can set up, you know, you take another one year to set up the assembly line for it. And once you set up the assembly line for it, it remains stable for about three or four years. So you can amortize all the cost for programming those robots by, you know, selling a you know, highly expensive product. Our toothpaste or our uh, our uh, razors, all of them are, the designs change quite frequently. They are packaged in different things uh, quite frequently. So it's a high changeover situation. And in those situations, you cannot take copious amount of times to program robots uh, because the situation changes quite frequently. And that's where a lot of manual labor is deployed currently. And that's where our AI systems can make a difference because AIs are much more adaptable and you can change the situations and your robots will still be able to function in the in the change situation. And that's where we are applying um, our robots. And are you, are you solving kind of these, you know, bread and butter industrial robotics problems, you know, bin picking and pick and place and that kind of thing? Or does the approach lend itself to either different or more complex problems? Yeah, we, we can do uh, much more complex problems than typical bin picking problems. Being able to pick up and manipulate objects more precisely and uh, do assembly tasks. So that's where we are uh, focusing more of our deployments compared to just traditional bin picking. And even traditional bin picking, the application areas are pretty you know narrow in that sense, in the sense that it's only in warehouses that you can apply that. But if you if you want to go into assembly lines, you have to be able to understand the objects and be able to manipulate them. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Can we kind of drill into the RCNs a little bit and some of the, sure. the concepts there? Yeah, yeah. So set the set the context for us and how you frame that problem up. Yeah, so the RCN model, we developed it as a generative model for vision. And I, I explained earlier why generative models are important because you want to be able to ground your concepts and language on these generative models so that you can run simulations about the real world in your mind. So RCN was uh, the first generative model for vision that we built, and we used it for solving CAPTCHAs. So that was, and we got attention for basically cracking text CAPTCHAs fundamentally, basically making them obsolete. So you can ask the question, why are CAPTCHAs important? You know, why, you know, why did we select CAPTCHAs as the problem to tackle? And the reason is that CAPTCHAs exemplify the strong generalization that we seek in our models. So what, what do we want our vision models to do? We should be able to basically tell the vision model, solve this problem without having to give any training examples. So if I, if I give you a new CAPTCHA from a you know, new style, I generate a new font and uh, I put different patterns on it, humans are able to solve all of them without getting millions and millions of training examples from that new style. Our current machine learning approaches do not work like that. If you want to solve a new style of CAPTCHA, you'll have to train a system with 
that captcha styles. That's not how human brains work. We can solve it without specific examples from that. So that was the motivation for attacking that problem using a generative model. And the reason why a generative model, a correctly formulated generative model has an advantage is that you can reason about um, the arrangement of characters in a, in a scene without having to train on the combinations of those characters. So if, if a character is tilting left and another one is tilting right, you don't have to train on that combination. A, a correctly formulated generative model will be able to reason about that. So having bringing in that reasoning into the model was a core part of uh, that model. So it is reasoning on the fly rather than just doing pattern recognition. So, so what is how, where does that reasoning come from? Yes, generative, but what is being generated and what does that look like from the perspective of the model that allows it to get to, okay, I understand this CAPTCHA? Yeah, so fundamentally, the model is about how do higher level of concepts, in this case, higher level concepts in vision are objects. How do higher level concepts translate to generated pixels? That's effectively what the model is encoding. If you do not give the model any input, if you go to the top of the model and poke a node corresponding to A, it will generate an A and it will it will generate a background and gener- put an A on top of it. So fundamentally what the model is basically saying is, okay, this is how images are generated. So it's a, it's a causal generative model. Mm-hmm. And then now given an input, given an evidence, what the model is trying to say is like, how do you explain that input in terms of my causal generative model? How do, how do I explain all the evidence in terms of how I know about how images are generated? So that means when it parses a scene of characters, a capture, it will come back and say, oh, this edge is caused by the A and this edge is missing or this part is, um, you cannot see this part because that is covered by another letter. So it is coming up with a complete explanation for what is in the picture. And it is trying to find the best explanation for the scene in terms of what it has seen before. So that's where the inference part comes in, finding the best explanation. So hopefully that answers the question. And, and so it sounds like from that explanation, the, the generative part of this mechanism happens during training and is baked into your model weights as opposed to I see this funky character. Now I'm going to do what you suggested we do as humans, do some simulation, generate a bunch of weird characters, and then try to map back from the simulation. Well, it is it is doing that simulation on the fly during inference. Okay. So, so the way it happens is that when a piece of evidence is presented, it uh, in the in the first forward pass recalls the close-by characters that need to be generated and tested. So the first pass produces an analysis of the scene. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, maybe an A is present here, maybe a B is present here, etc. Mm-hmm. And then the backward pass actually synthesizes the scene. So it is. Um, so it basically says, okay, A is present. It says A is present. Now let me try to generate that A and actually match to the scene. Does it fit? And how does it fit? And then sometimes these local generations are, you know, locally correct. But when you look at it globally, those local generations will not make any sense. So the system, by you know synthesizing these uh, initial uh, conjectures, tries to come to a globally coherent solution. So it is doing these generations internally and simulations internally. It's called analysis by synthesis. So yeah, 
the simulations are happening internally and the trick is in how do you make that fast enough so that you are not just trying all the things brute force and that's where the efficiency of inference comes in and that comes from one the structure of the model and uh, second how do you do how you do inference on it and we do inference by this idea called message passing where all of these nodes are communicating their beliefs on what they are seeing and the message passing algorithm comes to a global consensus very quickly on what is there in the scene okay so that's the the rcn and that kind of was initially applied on the captchas i guess one question i have is have you applied it to other types of captchas or only this one text based capture problem yeah we have applied it only to text based captchas problems and we are applying now that in real world captchas in the sense of you know picking bins or packing uh, boxes etc so we are applying those in uh, real world settings where uh, a bunch of objects in a bin they are cluttered there is occlusion you can do you know some sometimes neural network solutions work fine but they also run into trouble in many situations but we are able to apply the techniques that we developed in that paper in many many real world situations with great advantage got it okay and then the, you mentioned the schema networks follow that talk a little bit more about that and and where its contribution lies Yeah so schema networks paper so this is you know in contrast to deep reinforcement learning so you, you can think of schema networks paper as coming out almost a year or two years after all the deep reinforcement learning papers got a lot of attention and if you remember deep reinforcement learning uh, papers got a lot of attention for playing atari games at a superhuman level right and of course they played it in a superhuman level but it in a very narrow sense and and one contribution from our paper was that showing look playing at this superhuman level is not really you know if you look at it closely it doesn't make sense because when humans play a game we are building a model of what that game is in our brain and then we are using that model to drive our actions uh, how do you see that if i change a little some aspect of the game humans are able to adapt to it very quickly so for example if i take that atari game breakout and uh, insert a wall in between humans will immediately start hitting the ball towards the wall mm-hmm. a deep rl agent that is trained on this game with millions and millions of examples will just completely fail it will it will just keep hitting back and forth at the wall and that's because the deep rl agent as it is trained is not building a model of the game it is doing pure stimulus response matching you know just like it's almost like oh if i if i hit your knee with a with a hammer there will be that uh, response that is kind of programmed in right it's it's those reflexes it is it is learning a bunch of reflexes that lets you play that particular game but when you if something about the world changes that game doesn't adapt and what schema networks was showing was oh instead of doing this pattern matching stimulus response mapping what should be done is learning a model of the dynamics of the game and then using that model of the dynamics to plan rather than just react and so that's what schema networks showed so what we showed is that if you learn a model of the game in terms of its causal structure in terms of you know this is the cause and if i do this action this is the result and if you build a model like that then you that model is much more robust to perturbations that you can make in the world uh, whether it is changing where the paddle occurs changing the length or width of the paddle 
inserting obstacles, even changing the nature of the game somewhat, you can adapt to it much more quickly. So that was the contribution from that paper. Mm. And so uh, do you think that that approach should replace all of the the deep reinforcement? I feel like if that was a couple of years after we got really excited about deep reinforcement learning, we yeah. kept going with that same approach of, you know, policy networks and, you know, yeah. that same stuff. Like, wh- why aren't we just switching gears to schema network? Um, yeah. So, so one is that, you know, because there's a huge amount of momentum built around just training large networks, right? You know, accumulating a lot of data and training them. And that is something that you can democratize very easily. You know, lots of people can do that. Lots of infrastructure is built for that. So people will keep building large models and training them on, you know, large amounts of data because you, you it's an engineering approach that can be easily scaled up. Although the results do not scale, the, the activity scales <laughs> and, and, uh, and people follow that activity scaling because lots of people are working on it. There's that excitement around it. So that's just the natural momentum around things happening in the world, people following other people doing things. So I don't think those approaches fundamentally will solve the problem. You know, you do have to build models of the world. You have to reason using models of the world. And I'm seeing uh, many people are starting to switch to model-based reinforcement learning, where rewards are not the thing driving how you learn the model. Rewards are, yes, th- those rewards come in at the as the as the final step, but it is fundamentally driven by wanting to build models of the world and being able to reason about that world. And I think there is a switch happening in that direction. People are realizing that, but that doesn't mean it will change immediately. There is still a lot of momentum around deep reinforcement learning and just scaling these things up. And I don't think of that as a necessarily bad thing. That's that's just how things happen. Mm -hmm. RL, deep RL, is kind of notoriously difficult. As easy as, as you make it sound that we just you know, we've democratized it, we scale it up. It is notoriously difficult to get those models to work and to be stable and things like that. Is schema networks, you know, if we're looking at complexity as a, a measure, is it, you know, more nuanced? You know, is it more more complex to, to figure out? Is it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get at, uh, you know, beyond the, hey, we're... we're yeah. We, we've got some momentum behind DRL and and so we're just kind of pushing that direction. Like yeah. how do we compare as an approach if we've got some problem that we want to solve? Yeah, so schema networks uh, are uh, more theoretically nuanced and, and requires more of the deep expertise on graphical models and uh, message passing algorithms, et cetera, to set them up and learn and make them work. So I would say those are just like in the early days of deep learning, this knowledge was very specialized. It was, you know, even before Theano, uh, you know, if you, if you go up back to the 90s, you know, only some people would be able, were able to train uh, those things, right? So I would say schema networks are in that stage, whereas it is much easier to play around with deep learning systems because lots of tooling is built. And lots of people at least know how to train them. And if the training is converging, not converging, here are the magic tricks that you need to do. So in terms of uh, lots of people being able to try, even if the final system is hard to build or or it doesn't work that well in the real world, lots of people can try at the same time the deep RL, right? 
So, and if 10,000 people try, uh, one of those systems will <laughs> kind of work. Uh, and, 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 and because there are 10,000 people trying, uh, <laughs> all of those people will pay attention to that one thing that worked. <laughs> so, yeah. and, 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 and that will continue. And and if you look at uh, lots of submissions to iClear, uh, etc. Yeah, there are people, you know, there will be a paper that published in previous year, which shows that, oh, deep RL solves this navigation problem. And mm-hmm. then there will be a paper coming out the subsequent year showing that, no, actually, it didn't solve that problem. Here is how it breaks. And, uh, and it, it will keep going like that. But the fact is that fundamentally that approach has some shortcomings. And yeah. unless we address those shortcomings, which are hard to address, I'm not trivializing that problem. There are fundamental problems to solve there. Schema networks kind of show the direction in which we need to go. That doesn't mean we have solved all the fundamental problems there. And some subset of people will pay attention to those fundamental problems and, and push them. And once they start showing results, the tide will change. Mm-hmm. So going way back in our conversation, you made a comment about GPT-3. You threw it under the bus, said, you know, that's not the way human intelligence works. You know, but then you spent a bunch of time afterwards kind of talking about how generative is the key. And, you know, GPT-3 is fundamentally, it's a generative model. You know, is there some connection, you know, there that, you know, something like a GPT-3, you know, if we're only able to harness its generative abilities correctly, could in fact help us get towards uh, you know general intelligence or at least more general than what we've got today. Yeah. So uh, first thing, I don't want to throw GPT three under the bus in any any way in the sense of <laughs> I, I think it is it is cool. I think it is useful, etc. And uh, I do think they will find applications which are you know very very useful and uh, and you know why just uh, broadly deployed. I don't want to uh, diss the uh, usefulness of the system and neither do I, I want to diss the, the technical challenge involved in uh, building something like that. People spend a lot of effort in building those things and, and there are technical challenges. And I'm just trying to get to, you know, the connection between that kind of generative and AGI. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this comes to what kind of generative... There are so many different ways to build generative models and not all of them are amenable to building general intelligence and gpt3 is generative but in a very very trivial way it's a, it's a it's a you know you you can go in one direction you cannot do inference on the model you know it's yeah it can it can generate in one direction that's not what we need we want to build generative models on which we can do inference in arbitrary ways so for example uh, i i just want to give you an example of how the generation is limited uh, the generative model capability is limited if you train GPT-3 on generating images, right? If you you can you can basically say, oh, I give you the top half of the image, generate the bottom half, mm-hmm. but the same model will not be able to generate the top half given the bottom half, or mm-hmm. the left half given the right half, or do in painting where I say, oh, I I deleted this portion, you know, generate that. So it's generative in a very limited sense. What we want is a much more dynamic generative model on which we can query. Uh, we, we can ask many questions that we did not think about during the training of the model. So many of the models are generative only in one querying direction. So it's not just the generative aspect. It's more about how many queries can we efficiently answer on the generative model. So that's okay. one, one criteria that we need to consider when we consider evaluating the generative models. And if we map that criteria to today's technology or approach, is, is there a does, does 
that criteria necessitate uh, graph, at least of the tools that we have today? Does it necessitate model-based, you know, of the tools we have today? Or, you know, are those just a couple of the ways that you've approached the problem? So I think graphs will be important. Uh, model-based will be important. Message passing will be important. I think all these aspects, I can, I'm uh, reasonably certain these, these, these will be core. Okay. And, um, you know, causal reasoning will also be important, but they, th- that's already connected to... That comes from graph and... Yeah. Okay. Cool. Any general thoughts on general intelligence before we uh, close out? That we already talked about. <laughs> you know, just kind of big picture. Where where do you think we are, you know, and, and how, how close are we? Crystal ball, that kind of thing. So I think, you know, we will develop general intelligence while still also developing narrow intelligence applications, right? There, there will always be uh, narrow intelligence approaches to uh, some high-value problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when there are well-defined problems which are uh, high-value, for example, ad- optimizing advertisements or anything where a little bit of difference can give you a lot of advantage in terms of the money that you generate from that activity, you can still apply narrow intelligence approaches. So people will still continue applying narrow intelligence approaches even after AGI is built. If you run a thought experiment on, oh, if you if there is an intelligence system which is actually able to reason like humans, it might conclude that training a deep neural network is the right approach for a particular problem <laughs> when, when it is the right match. I don't know whether that makes any... No, I, I, get, I get where you're going. I think I'm kind of hearing it as like, you know, just because we're humans and among the things that we can do generally is calculate that we're better than calculators. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So while we are developing general intelligence, all the narrow intelligence applications will also continue and and, and those talk techniques also will develop. So in that way, I think of them as complementary, not necessarily competing with each other. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Dalip, thanks so much for taking the time to share a little bit about what you're up to. Very fascinating stuff and uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Sam. It was was great uh, being here. And thanks for asking all the provocative questions. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.